Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak to us, and that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that we would be changed and molded and shaped to be your people in this world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time uh, today, we've been in a series looking together at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century city of Colossae. But uh, this, this evening, we are actually going to pause, and I just want to talk to you tonight very personally about something that I believe right now in particular really threatens the health, the vitality, and the mission of the church, and it is division and disunity. So over the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of conversations and I've engaged uh, with some podcasts, uh, listening to pastoral voices from all over the nation. And it's interesting because everyone I, I've heard from, everyone I've talked to is saying the same thing. And this is from pastors in Kansas to California, from Arkansas to Oregon, uh, from New York uh, to New Mexico, that what they are saying is that more and more right now, we are in a season where churches all over our country are being de divided and they're experiencing disunity. And of course, it, it is almost cliche to say that we live in a very divided, uh, a very disunified culture right now in America. And of course, there's all kinds of political divisions, and this is an election year, and then there's divisions regarding COVID-19 and the response and, and face masks, and there's divisions, of course, regarding racial inequalities and injustice and all of that. And the divisions that are at play in the culture have come to surface within churches all over this country. And it threatens to sabotage the mission that God has given to us. Now, of course, division, disunity, this is not a new issue for churches. Uh, this is one of the most common, most persistent, and most unyielding problems in churches. And it always has been, you know, divisions and quarreling. Uh, there's a classic story, a classic joke told about a man who was about ready to jump off a bridge to take his life, and another man runs up to him and says, don't do it. And the man replies, but nobody loves me. And the other said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. He said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. And he said, really, me too. Are you a Protestant or Catholic? And he said, Protestant. And he said, really, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. He said, really, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. He said, me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liber uh, uh, liberal Baptist. He said, uh, Northern conservative Baptist. He said, me too. He said, Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region or Northern conservative Baptist, Eastern region. And he said, Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region. He said, me too. And he said, Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879 or Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912. And he said, Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region of 1912. And he said, die, heretic. And he threw him off the bridge. <laughs> now, if you've been around the church for a while, it's likely that you've heard that joke uh, it was originally written by a comedian whose name was Imo Phillips, and it was voted in an online survey as the best church joke of all time. 
And I think the reason why it works is because so many of us are familiar with petty and ridiculous divisions that crop up in the church over very, very petty stuff. You know, a recent survey on Twitter asked people to share about the most ridiculous church fights they'd seen. And one included an argument over the length, the right length of the worship pastor's beard. Which, just for the record, I think the right length is the length of Ryan Wiley's beard. It for sure is the best. There was another fight over whether to install dividers in the women's restroom, which I just wanted to ask, is that even a question? Just spend the money and get the dividers in there. Why would you even question it? Uh, There was a dispute over whether the worship leader should keep his shoes on during uh, the worship service, which I think, again, for the record, that it's probably a good idea, except for if you're doing outdoor worship, we can go shoes off. Amen. Amen. If you're inside watching us uh, online in the morning, you probably have your shoes off right now. Uh, There was one more that was a debate over whether to allow deviled eggs at potlucks. Seriously. Now, of course, uh, Christians don't fight over only petty and superficial stuff. There's more serious issues regarding theology and philosophy and cultural and social issues, and of course, politics as well. And the church has done this for ages. You know, it was in 1054 that the first major schism in the church occurred between the Eastern and the Western church. And it was over a clause in the Apostles' Creed. And then in 1517, there was another uh, divide in the church, uh, the Protestant Reformation, over very serious issues regarding justification by faith and authority and whatnot. And so divisions, uh, quarreling, it's not a new issue, but it is a very, very serious issue in the church. You know, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for his church And in that prayer, do you know what he asked of the Father? He prayed that the church would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And he said, so that all may know that you sent me. In other words, the mission of the church, the witness of the church is connected to our ability to get along together as a unified body. Or as Jesus said, all people will know that we are his disciples, not by how we vote, not by our uh, precise theology, not by the bumper stickers on our car. All people will know that we are disciples by how we love one another. In other words, our ability to love each other and to stay unified in the midst of this very, very divided, uh, divisive, vitriolic season right now is dependent upon our ability to love each other and to come together. And if we don't do that, we can sabotage the mission that God has given to us as a church. And so tonight, I just want to spend a few minutes attending together to our unity as a church family. And I want to do that by sharing with you a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. And here, the Apostle Paul is calling the church in Corinth into unity. Now, it's apparent here that uh, this is not just a problem uh, that the church has today. It's not just a problem the church has had historically. Here we discover that even the very early church was having divisions and problems and quarrelings and fights. And so Paul says in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united together in the same mind, in the same judgment. For, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Apparently, the Apostle Paul had had a little emissary uh, from the church come and visit him, uh, some of Chloe's people, and Chloe's people gave him an earful about all of the bickering and the quarreling and the fighting and the divisions that were happening in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to address their divisions and to call them and us to unity. And I want you to hear what he says in this call to unity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so here is the call for us into unity. Be of the same mind, be of the same judgment, be in unity together. But friends, what exactly does that even mean? Because here he is calling us to all agree and be of the same mind. But isn't the real problem that a lot of us just don't agree and that we're not of the same mind? I mean, there's all kinds of disagreements among us. You know, of course, there's political disagreements among you. Some of you are on the right and some are on the left. Uh, some intend to vote for the incumbent in the next election, and some of you would never do that in your lifetime. Uh, there's, of course, uh, social differences among us, and, and there's cultural differences among us, and there's ethical differences among us, and there's, there's differences theologically among us, you know? Some of us maybe might be a young earth creationist, and some might be an intelligent designer, and others, you know, believe in theistic evolution, and, and, and there's all kinds of divisions among us, and these threaten to undo and divide the church. And so what exactly does Paul mean when he calls a church to agree and be of the same mind together. What do we mean when we're talking about unity? Well, let's first talk about what Paul doesn't mean. First, unity doesn't mean uniformity. And so, for example, throughout this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, uh, Paul addresses a number of issues, and one of the issues he addresses is a division in the church over whether or not Trust me, this is going to be an issue that none of you struggle with. But they were struggling with whether or not they should eat meat that had been offered to idols. Now, again, that's not an ethical issue that's live for us, but it was a live issue in the first century. They had these uh, idol temples, and you would go and sacrifice an, uh, uh, you know, an animal to the gods, you know, and then uh, they would burn some of it and offer it as an offering, and then the, the meat from that temple would oftentimes go and be sold in the marketplace. And so some Christians said, look, if this was offered to an idol, I can't eat it. You know, it's idol meat. And others said, no, it's no big deal. Idols aren't a real thing, and we can eat it. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't call them to agree with each other. Instead, what he tells them to do is to love those with whom they disagree, to respect and to honor and to engage with people who disagree with you. And so when Paul calls for the unity of the church here, he doesn't mean unity or uniformity. Secondly, when Paul calls for unity, he is not talking here about the new tolerance, you know, the old tolerance is uh, captured in that famous statement by Voltaire who said, I may dislike what you believe, but I will defend to the death your right to believe it. But of course, the new tolerance says something a little bit different. It says, look, uh, if you don't like and affirm what I believe, then I'm going to cancel you. 
and I'm going to opt out, and I'm not going to like you. I demand that you agree with me and my lifestyle and my opinions and to affirm me. But it's interesting because throughout this letter, Paul doesn't simply affirm everything the church believes and does. Instead, throughout this letter, he is confronting the church and he is challenging them. And so certainly uh, there is a space in the life of a church for confronting one another and challenging one another. And so unity doesn't mean the new tolerance. Thirdly, uh, he's not talking about a superficial unity that is maintained by avoiding hard conversations. So I, as kind of by nature, I'm more of a people pleaser. You know, they say that there are sometimes there's people who feel the need to be respected and they're kind of power and dominance people. And then there's uh, more of the people that need to be liked and they're kind of the more kind of like go along, get along, uh, be friendly and happy and try to get everyone to go along. And I tend more to the uh, uh, desire to be liked. And so my default mode is to avoid a hard conversation in order to maintain semblance of unity. But that's not what Paul is calling for here and that's not what is required to maintain true unity in the church. Unity that Paul is speaking of here is a unity that is actually based on truth and honest and gracious conversations we have with each other. You know, one thing that almost everybody says about the letter that he's writing here to this church in Corinth is that it is a remedial letter, which means that it is written to correct problems. And in order to correct problems, you need to speak truth, you need to call stuff out, you need to challenge stuff. And so he's not here talking about a superficial unity that comes from avoiding hard conversations, nor is it a unity that is based on uniformity or the new tolerance. And so what is it that Paul is speaking of here? I think what he's talking here about is a unity that is grounded in something much bigger and better than all of the little things we may disagree about. What he's talking about here is a unity that is grounded in something that is far more beautiful and compelling than simply having us agree politically and uh, on all the little theological and biblical disagreements that we might have. Instead, what he's talking about here and what he's calling for is a unity that is based in the gospel of Jesus. And look at how he puts it as the text goes on. He says, what I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another says, I follow Christ. There's always got to be one uber spiritual person in the group who says, I don't follow those human leaders. I just follow Jesus, you know, uh, but sort of does it in a little bit of uh, self-righteousy sort of way. Now, there's an interesting background thing that's happening here. So in the city of Corinth, uh, there were these sophists that were these rhetoricians that filled the city. And they were very, very popular, and they would gain followings, and oftentimes they would attract disciples who would come to them and learn from them. And so you had these great orators who uh, could turn a phrase and who were witty and who were compelling. And they would gather these different crowds of people 
And then there would be this competition going on in the city kind of about whose order is better than the other order. And if you attached yourself, let's say, to Rufus, and there was Titus over there, you would start, you know, these little chairs that would say something like, uh, Rufus, Rufus, he's our man. You know, if he can't do it, nobody can, you know, and Titus would, would, and his followers would say, no, 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 Rufus is bad. You know, Titus is better. He's a more eloquent, better speaker. And they would attach themselves to these different speakers. And what happened was, is Paul and other Christian preachers like a guy named Apollos come into the city of Corinth and they mistakenly think that these preachers are more like sophists, you know, these orators. And they would attach themselves to either Paul or Apollos and they would start to divide the church based upon the celebrity personalities that they liked best. Does that sound anything like what happens in the church today? They would attach themselves uh, uh, to political voices and then divide themselves based upon, you know, uh, whose voice was stronger and saying better things than somebody else. And it was dividing the church. And Paul says, look, why are you doing that? And essentially what he says, don't you know that what unifies you together is much stronger and powerful than all of the personalities that are dividing you? And he might say to us, don't you know, Christ Church, that what unifies us together is so much bigger and more beautiful than our opinions about COVID-19 and whether or not we should wear masks and how often and where and the government response and whether we like it or not and what the church should do and what the leader should do. And we've all got opinions about this stuff. And many of us, we have different opinions that, that, uh, about the racial issues and, and what contributes to racial injustice in our world today and racial inequalities and, and if racism is a thing and how big of a thing and, and we've got debates and we've got opinions and we've got voices that we listen to on our news feed and in social media that speak to us about these issues and we attach ourselves like they did in the first century. They attach themselves to different orders and we're divided together. But Paul says, don't you know that what unites you together is so much stronger than anything that might divide you? Amen. And what unites us together is the gospel of Jesus. And what the gospel reveals to you and me is at least two things that unite us together. Number one, we are united together in our need for the gospel. We're united together in the fact that all of us are weak and needy people. Paul puts it like this, verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. I love this. Consider your calling. Think about this. Look around. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, he said, I want you to look around and I want you to look in the mirror and what I want you to consider is not first your strength. What I want you to consider is your weakness. Now, can I just be honest and frank with you all? I want to present strong to you all. 
I want you all to think that I'm articulate and smart and brilliant and a great preacher and a a great leader who makes the right decisions and is leading the church in the right direction and who's an awesome dad and an awesome husband and who prays in a model way and fasts and and seeks God and gives away all of my my money and my resources in a way that, that just is a model for the whole church. I want to present strong. I want to be viewed as just a strong, awesome leader. But you know, the honest truth is that I am not primarily a strong person, but I am a weak person. I have so, so, so many weaknesses. You know, I have intellectual weaknesses. I don't know nearly enough about the Bible or theology or history or politics or philosophy or human psychology or sociology or the dynamics, uh, you know, around the virus that uh, causes COVID-19 and how it spreads and exactly how dangerous it really is. I I don't have enough intellect to have pure judgment on all the matters that have to deal with racial justice issues in our country and all the historical factors and social factors and economic factors that kind of lead, like I I am weak intellectually and and I'm weak socially. Oftentimes I talk too loud and I talk too much and I don't listen well. And I have spiritual weaknesses. I don't fast and pray and practice the spiritual disciplines nearly like I should. And my own story contains embarrassing and shameful moral failures and weaknesses. And I'm not always the parent or husband or neighbor that I know I should be. And I can be defensive and insecure. And I know I'm not alone, am I? You know, all of us want to present strength But the God-honest truth is that all of us are full of weakness and brokenness and all kinds of stuff that if we really dig beneath the surface of the life you present to others and we saw what was deep down in the crevices of your heart and in those hidden away pockets of your soul and what you've done when nobody else was looking, you would be a broken down mess. But here's the good news. We are all united together in that. And so when we engage together in areas of disagreement, one thing we can perfectly recognize together is that all of us are united in our weakness and our need before Jesus. And that would cultivate incredible compassion towards one another and mercy and grace and love. But we're not just united in our need for the gospel because of our weakness. We are also united together in that we have been recipients of the gospel. Or put it like this, though we are weak, we have been recipients of the strength and the power of God manifest in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this. He says, Jesus is the source of your life. God made him our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, don't boast in your political ideology or of all the ways in which you figured out everything about COVID-19. Don't boast about your theological or your biblical acumen. Boast in this. Boast in God's strength manifest in Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection on your behalf. And a church that recognizes its need that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but in Jesus Christ, we have been, ex- we have been the recipients of God's extravagant, passionate, unmitigated, 
unmerited, unreserved love in the cross. A church that rallies around that and, and focuses on that, like that is the source, that is the basis of our unity. And so what Paul is calling us to do in this text, he's saying, look, I know the culture is divided. I know that we've got different opinions. I know that we have different attachments to different news sources and uh, social media voices and, and all of the rest. But he says, let the thing that unites us together, the very foundation of your unity, be our joint and shared need for the gospel and our joint and shared recipient, receiving of the extravagant grace of God in Jesus Christ who is for us our sanctification and our righteousness and our wisdom. Let us be a people that boast primarily first and foremost in Jesus Christ and in his extravagant love for us. But now let me just say one more thing. So we've seen Paul, he calls us to unity and we've explored a little bit about what kind of unity the church is called into but I want you to see as we close that this is not simply a unity that we are called to accept at an idea level, but this is a unity we are invited to practice in our life together. You know, it's interesting as you get a little bit further into Paul's letter to this church in Corinth that's so divided and they're divided because of their envy, their bitterness, their jealousies, uh, their arrogance, their fighting with each other, you know, and all of that. Paul's letter reaches a climax, as it were, in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's known around a lot of circles as the love chapter. Even if you're not familiar with Christianity or the Bible, you've probably heard this beautiful poem of love read at weddings. But what's interesting is that 1 Corinthians 13 was not written first for a lovely wedding on a nice sunny afternoon. It was written first and foremost for a divisive church to call them into the practice of unity through the discipline and the habit of love. And he says this, the kind of love that will maintain the unity of this church family is patient and kind. It's patient and it's kind. You know, the kind of love that is patient is a love that is around people that require patience. Anybody here have people in your life that require patience? Sometimes you'd like, anybody here ever look in the mirror at somebody who requires patience? <laughs> love is patient. And love is kind. Love speaks kind words. It thinks kind thoughts. It doesn't jump to the worst conclusions about people and build the worst narratives and assumptions about people. Love is kind. And love, it does not envy or boast. It is not braggadocious and competitive. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not send rude tweets or rude emails or rude texts. Uh, this kind of love actually engages in, in gracious conversations. It is not irritable or resentful. Anybody here ever felt irritable? Anybody here felt irritable even tonight in the warmth of this weather? Or right now in the morning because you didn't get enough sleep last night or you didn't sleep well enough? 
or have people around you that you find irritable. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then he closes with this. He said, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. Love never fails. And if we are to be a community that stands out in the midst of a very divided culture as a community that is unified around the gospel of Jesus, we have got to be those people that learn the habits of love and that work itself out in how we speak to each other, how we engage with each other, how we listen to each other, how we understand each other. We have got to, we've got to do better, friends. We have got to do better. You know, as I, as I look at, at, at the, the, the mission that God has given to us as a church, God has given us a mission to bear witness to his strong and compelling love in our life together and in our words and in our deeds here in Sierra Madre and throughout the San Gabriel Valley and throughout LA County. This is the work God has given us to do. And it is way too important to be sabotaged by disunity and by quarreling and by divisions over things that have no business dividing us when we should be united in Jesus Christ. But I can just imagine, I, I just imagine us, Christ Church, being this community that is patient and kind, a community where we are surrounded by not a homogeneous lot, we're not simply surrounded by people who think like us and look like us and vote like us, but we are surrounded by a community of people who process life differently and who vote differently and who, who've had a different story than you and different experience from you. But because we come together in Jesus Christ, we help each other. We help each other grow. We sharpen off or, or we, we smooth off the rough edges that we find in each other. And, and we move towards each other with grace and love and truth. And because of our relationships, we are actually in the midst of this uncivil, divided world to stand out, as Jesus says, a witness to the gospel. That all people know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And the only power, the only strength that I know of to be that kind of community is to be people who regularly and habitually, continually go back before the face of God, confessing with frankness and honesty before his face, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. But God, thank you that you, through Jesus Christ, have come after me and you have conquered my heart and you have borne my shame and you have removed my guilt and you have taken in yourself all of the, the judgment that I deserve so that I can be released and freed and so that I can be a recipient of your grace. God, continue to help me extend that grace with honesty and truth toward each other for the rest of my life. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we confess to you, O oh Lord, that there is so much in our hearts and lives out of our old nature that keeps surfacing and causes us to move toward each other in ways that hurt, in ways that create pain, 
in ways that cause division, and we have not moved properly towards each other with grace and truth and love. Fill us, O God, with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might experience in a more profound way your extravagant love, and then make us conduits of that love in our relationships with each other, so that you might be glorified, and so that the world might know that we are your disciples. Amen.